Luke 8, 22 through 25. You'll find that on page 865 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning, Luke 8, 22 through 25. Let me again just briefly pray for us before we come to the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, we are grateful for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you that your words are spirit and life. We thank you that your word is meant to lead us to the living word, the Lord Jesus. We pray, our God, that you would work in us the gift and the grace of faith and repentance this morning, even as we hear. We pray that you would stir up the soil of our hearts, that we might receive your word, that we might understand it that we might believe it and meditate on it and keep it and bear fruit with patience. We pray, our God, that we would know the power of the gospel this morning. We pray that we would see who the Lord Jesus is more clearly. We pray, our God, that you would accomplish your eternal purposes among us in the minds and the hearts of your people as your word is read and proclaimed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke has been tracing the ministry of Jesus, and he has most recently given us uh, the miracles of Jesus, and he has given us the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain. He has given us the parables of Jesus, and he has then told us, uh, last of all, who the true family of God is there in that previous section. And now, as Jesus continues on in his ministry, Luke says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in 1633, Rembrandt, the great uh, Renaissance artist, painted a famous painting of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It was one of those paintings that was stolen in 1990, just as an aside, the greatest art theft in the United States history out of a museum in Boston, and I don't think it's been recovered to this day, but there are plenty of copies of this painting, and in this painting, all of the disciples are in the midst of this storm. There is darkness surrounding the boat as the waves are, are crashing down on the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are in different postures on this boat in this painting. And there is one individual on the boat who is facing you as you look into the painting. He is holding on to one of the ropes, looking away from the boat and looking directly at you. And there is a look of, of fear a distraught look on his face, and we are, I think, supposed to take from that 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 is Rembrandt. He had painted himself into this painting. Now, I wonder what Rembrandt had been going through in life that he would see himself in this account, even as he captured it in this magnificent painting. And I think that what Rembrandt does is very important because I think we are meant to see ourselves in this account, 
when we come to look at the disciples here on this boat with Jesus in the storm, Jesus is asleep. The storm is crashing down on the boat. The waters are filling the boat. The disciples, you get the sense, are busying themselves trying to stabilize the boat. The the Sea of Galilee, you may not know, was about 33 miles in circumference. And they are in the middle of the worst storm of their life. And they are freaked out. And they are anxious. And they are worried. And they are fearful. And they go to Jesus and they wake him up and they say, Master, Master, we are are perishing. And Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and then he rebukes the disciples. And then the account ends with the disciples saying, who is this? Who can this be? Then even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, uh, Luke is giving us this as one of three uh, miracles that Jesus is about to accomplish at the end of this chapter. This here, Jesus is showing that he has power over nature itself. In a very real sense, he is the second Adam. Remember, man at creation was to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And you'll hear tonight, if you come, Psalm 8, where, where uh, the psalmist says that God had put all things in dominion under man, and yet it doesn't look like all things are in dominion under man, and yet here is the God-man, and he's on the boat. And he's the second Adam, he's the Redeemer, and with a word, he silences the wind and the waves. He has control over creation in the... The next two passages, you'll see that he has control over demonic forces and then that he has power and control over sickness and disease, whether it is nature, whether it is demonic activity, whether it is sickness and disease. The Lord Jesus has authority and power over all of it. Um, Luke is no doubt bringing that forward. That is one of the main things. Who is Jesus? We need to know who Jesus is. And yet there is a lesson here that perhaps in some sense is equally as important. Who are we and how do we respond when we're in the midst of trials that Jesus has brought into our lives? How are we to respond? How are we to think about him? And what impact does this have on our life? We're going to see this morning three things. First, we're going to consider the trying circumstances that the disciples found themselves in. Secondly, we're going to consider the exhibition of their sinful human weakness. And then finally, we're going to consider Jesus' miraculous divine power. We'll notice that it is Jesus who takes his disciples into the boat and carried on in his ministry. It is Jesus who decides, let's go on the boat and cross over to the other side. It is Jesus who is bringing the disciples into the storm. Um, I don't think that that is reading into the text. Notice Luke says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, John Calvin will reflect on this and he will say, um, surely there is no circumstance that is out of his control when he is teaching his disciples these lessons. Jesus is doing something to instruct his disciples. He is in control of the trial. He is going to test the faith of his disciples. Now, in order to understand why this is important, you have to understand that the disciples had not been with Jesus all that long. They've only been with him for several months. They have seen him do some pretty amazing miracles. They've seen him heal a leper of his leprosy. They have seen him give a paralytic man his legs back. They have been with him when he has raised the son of the widow of Nain. They have seen the power of the Savior. 
They have heard his teaching. They have been there with him as he taught that great Sermon on the Plain, the Beatitudes and the other parts of the kingdom, ethics and Christian living that he is producing in his people, and they have been with him when he has most recently told him about the mysteries of the kingdom in the parables. They have benefited from being with Jesus. They have received all of these rich privileges of being with Jesus, and now there's a trial. Now, Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on this passage and this situation, says, intermingled with great successes will be great afflictions. Pentecost is followed by persecution. Peter's sermon is followed by Peter's imprisonment. Though today a church may flourish, in a short time it may be visited with stern adversities because God is in the midst. He is blessing it. Now you may say, wait a minute, this doesn't look like God's blessing. They're in a storm. Um, That's precisely the point. That's why this account happened. That's why Luke has recorded it. It's why Matthew and Mark have recorded it. It's so important. It made its way into all of the synoptic gospels. It is there to teach us that trying our faith and the tribulations that we must endure are part of the blessing of God because God is with us in the midst of those afflictions. He is sovereign over them, and he is there to teach us to trust him in the midst of those afflictions and tribulations. Now, Imagine the feelings these men had. They've been with Jesus. They've had all these privileges. They think, okay, the kingdom of God is coming. We're with the long-awaited Messiah. This is the greatest privilege. All of human history has been waiting for this man. And, And he's chosen us, and we're with him, and he's bringing the kingdom of God. He's bringing the full redemption of God into the world. This is the savior of the world. Think about somebody important that you respect, they are nothing to Jesus. This is the most important being. This is the God-man, and they are with him, and now they think their lives are going to end as soon as they've begun following him. I want you to think about that for a minute, what's going on inside them. Martin Lloyd-Jones made a great deal about that. He said, what an anticlimax for these disciples. And then he says, how often we are tempted to say such things exactly as these disciples in the boat were. No sooner does God put some affliction in our life that we start complaining, we start getting nervous, we start getting anxious, we start freaking out. You know, yesterday, um, at one of those days where I freaked out about something, and it, it just consumed me, and it was sort of illogical, sinful anxiety. And I called Travis and I called Mark and I freaked out. And then I I went back to sermon prep and I was like, oh man, this is exactly why God has put this in the Bible. Um, The trials, the hardships, the needs, the difficulties, the opposition, the persecution, the affliction, the tribulation, If, if Christ is with us, they are meant to test our faith so that as Peter says, that you may come forth as gold. You know, Peter, who was on this boat, actually learns this lesson 
And in 1 Peter, he will say, uh, he'll say, if need be, for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does God bring tribulation into the lives of his beloved? Because he wants their faith to come forth as gold that has been refined in the furnace of affliction. Because on the last day when he comes again, that is what's going to be seen. They trusted him in the midst of the hardship. It's not hard to trust Jesus when things are going well. It's not hard to think good thoughts of Jesus when things are going This is the problem with America and the American church and the health, wealth, prosperity, false gospel. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Think good thoughts and it will happen is not the good Jesus of the Bible. Name it and claim it is not the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of Scripture brings us into affliction, into hardship, into trial. He's there with us, and he does it to try our faith. Uh, John Calvin, again, reflecting on this, said, If the distresses grow to such a height, as almost to overwhelm us, let us believe that God does it with the same design of exercising our patience or of bringing to light in this way our hidden weakness. You see, there is a purpose in the trial. There's a purpose in the storm that the disciples are experiencing. Now, I want you to think about this because you may say, okay, that sounds really nice. That's great. That'll really help me when I get cancer. That'll really help me if I ever go through a hardship. But, you know, what, what, about, what about in my day in and day out? I mean, what, what is this teaching me on a daily experience? Well, remember, four of the 12 disciples on this boat were professionally trained fishermen. So I want you to think about this. Four of the 12, at least four, knew what they were doing, had been in storms on the Sea of Galilee before, knew how to weather storms, knew how to make it through safely, and they are completely undone. In the one area of their life in which they think they know what to do, they are completely undone. In their daily occupation, they are completely undone. They don't know what to do. They are freaked out. We should actually read this with some sort of sobriety and think, how in the world would professionally trained fishermen like these be so perplexed? Well, because... When God brings the trials, they can be overwhelming. They can be overwhelming, and oftentimes he brings the trials to the very places where we think we know what to do. When we think we know what to do, that's usually where he strips away whatever we think we're standing on so that we will not trust in ourselves, but we will trust in him. It's at the very place in the daily experience, in the everyday happenings of their life that he strips away the bottom. And he leaves them not trusting themselves to show them their weakness, to show them their lack of faith, to show them their need for him. And at the end of the day, as we then move that point of circumstances to our own lives, the question is, are we going to trust in the sovereignty and good purpose of Christ when we go through the hardships and he's asleep? Jesus is asleep in the midst of the storm. Um... He's tired. One theologian said, if you went around and 
from morning till night, virtue just poured out of you, you would be extremely tired too. Virtue, holiness, goodness, miraculous powers. This has, by the way, probably been a pretty long day. Um, theologians are kind of divided on, on what all happened, but it seems that the way the, the gospel writers put this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's been a pretty full day for Jesus. He's been doing miracles. He's been teaching. He's been traveling. He's been interacting. He's been opposed. He's been correcting. He's been teaching. He's been showing himself to be the gracious redeemer, and now he's tired, and he sleeps in the middle of the storm. Um, There's, there's something wonderful about that. You know, I, I thought about this. I thought if we were on this boat, and let's say you, you, some of you were chartering it, and I was like, all right, guys, I'm going to take a nap, you probably would be like, you're doing what? Because we're really self-righteous. And we really, uh, no, you need to be helping. And Jesus is there taking a nap. He's calm. In the middle of the worst storm that they have ever been in. You know, that minimally shows us what a conscience that doesn't know any sin looks like. And the prophets say that uh, the heart of the wicked is like the restless sea. When the psalmist talks about the wicked, he talks about uh, the, the, the churnings of the water, the restlessness. Uh, we often feel that in our own hearts, restless. Um, that's not a mark of a conscience that is at peace with God. Here is the sinless son of God, and he's tired from his labors. He's tired from doing good. He is fully man, and he goes to sleep on the boat, even as he brings his disciples sovereignly into this storm to test them and to try them. Uh, before I look at the disciples' weakness in more detail, I want us to consider the fact that the disciples don't understand the purpose of this. Jesus is bringing them along. He's instructing them. I think that's such a huge part of the Christian life. Um, there is so much that God does in our lives that we don't understand what's happening. We walk into a situation. We think we've got it under control. We think we've got our home under control. We think we've got our lives under control. And then God brings some trying situation, and we don't understand what's happening. The disciples, they don't get it. And yet, and yet, after this account, they get it. And it's very interesting. Luke, who wrote this account, will find himself in a great sea storm at the end of the book of Acts when he's traveling with Paul. And there's no sense that he or the Apostle Paul are shaken by it. It's as if Luke has learned the lesson from this account. We know that Peter learned the lesson from this account. We know that, that Jesus was teaching them that they might glean this precious lesson of trusting him in the midst of the worst afflictions, the worst trials, and to be able to say on the other side, it is good for me that I was afflicted. The psalmist says that. It's one of those verses in the Bible we should learn to love. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn to keep your commandments. Only a true believer can say that. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Well, notice the, the sinful response of the disciples. And you might say on, on 
a, a general reading, you might say, wait a minute, that's, that's kind of harsh. Isn't that harsh to say that they're sinful? I mean, they're freaked out. They're in a storm. Who wouldn't be freaked out? I'd be freaked out. Rembrandt said he would be freaked out. I mean, it's a little bit harsh. No, actually, it's, it's not harsh at all. They're, they are beyond trouble. They are, they are living in uh, tumultuous fear. Their hearts are like the sea. Think about that. Their hearts, in the very element in which they are most comfortable, are just like the elements around them. Their hearts are turbulent. They don't know what to do. They're freaking out. They're scared. They're, they're scared to the point of death. They think this is it. Now, in a very real sense, they've forgotten everything Jesus has told them, haven't they? If they knew, he chose them so that they might be part of the commission that he is going to send to send the gospel into the world. They should have known that nothing is going to happen to them until he fulfills that. They should have known that his purposes were going to come to bear. They should have known that he was with them. They should have known that if he was with them and he's the Savior, this is not how he's going to perish. Now, we don't know whether they were so self-absorbed as to think only of themselves and not of him. It is quite possible when they come and they say, Master, we perish. They're not concerned about him at all. It's also possible that they are a little bit concerned about him and the we is all of us together are going to perish. And there seems something commendable on the surface. It seems like this is a good thing. They're coming to Jesus. That's a good thing, right? Yes, it is always a good thing when we find ourselves in difficult situations. It is always the right thing to go to Jesus and to say, Master, have mercy. And yet they come to him frantic. They come to him, as we'll see here, unbelieving. The other Gospels actually uh, give us more detail. Mark tells us that they come to Jesus and they say to him, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? So there's something in their hearts that is, in a sense, blaming Jesus for the situation that they're in. You know, I don't think they would ever say, if you said to them at this moment, I mean, guys, you're blaming Jesus. They wouldn't say, no, 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 we're not. They wouldn't say, yeah, we are. But when they say to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? When they come to him frantic, they're, they're ultimately saying, we don't trust you to get us through this storm. We don't trust you to get us safe to the other side. We don't trust you to, to do what we know you are able to do. They should have come to him calmly. They should have said, Lord, we're undone. They could have come to him with the same level of concern, but they should have come with a trusting heart. That's the point. Their response shows that they're not trusting Jesus. Now, I told you yesterday I found myself in a very similar situation. And there have been many times I found myself in those situations where something is going on, there's some weight some affliction or some difficulty laid on me, and, and I go to the Lord, but I'm not going trusting him. I'm going because I just want to be delivered from this. I just want it to be easier. I think that's what's happening with the disciples. They're not, they're not really trusting Jesus. They're just wanting to get out of this. They just don't want to perish at that moment. Um, you know, they, they should have known 
that even when Jesus was asleep, I mean, think about this. Jesus has already raised the dead. Like, that's the point. He's already raised the widow of Nahan's son. No one can do that but the Son of God. He's already healed a leper. That was physically and metaphysically impossible. He has already given a lame man, a paralytic, his legs back. They've seen his power. They should have known. Even if he's asleep, he'll get us through this. They should have known the great power of Christ. They should have trusted him, and they should have gone to him calmly, and they should have committed themselves to him, and they should have asked for his help uh, with peace, with a sense of peace. Um, Now, I want to say this this morning. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that the disciples responded sinfully. I am thankful that the disciples responded sinfully because there is a lesson there for me when I respond sinfully. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I never cease to be grateful for the disciples. I'm grateful for the record of every mistake they've ever made, for every blunder they ever committed, because I see myself in them. How grateful we should be to God that we have these scriptures. How grateful to him that he has not merely given us the gospel and left it at that. How wonderful it is that we can read accounts like this and see ourselves depicted in them. How grateful we should be to God that it is a divinely inspired word which speaks the truth and shows and pictures every human frailty. Now, if you know how sinful and weak you are, you should be saying amen right now. And if you don't, I, I, my heart breaks for you if you don't know how sinful and weak you are. Um, you will know when you're put in the furnace of affliction, but when God puts us there and we have failed, we take great comfort in the fact that the disciples at times failed and that there's a lesson in there for us, that Jesus is going to even restore and bear us up even with our great weaknesses and failings. Well, There is the great exhibition now, finally, of his power. Uh, Kent Hughes puts this so uh, cleverly. He said, you know, the storm doesn't wake Jesus up. The unbelief in the hearts of the disciples does. Isn't that marvelous? The storm doesn't wake Jesus up, but the unbelief in the disciples' hearts wakes him up. Um, They wake him. They say, Master, Master, we're perishing. The other gospels say that they say, don't you care? Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the fact that he was on the boat is proof that he cares. That was proof alone that he was with them. The fact that he would hang on the cross is the greatest proof that he cares. Um, He was only there on the boat. He would only hang on the cross because he cared. He He would go through the storm of God's wrath because he cares. He would quiet that storm because he cares. Now, here, he quiets that storm with a word. And it's powerful. What a word. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, inanimate objects. Uh, There's this great story, I think I've told you this, about John Bunyan, the uh, 16th century uh, Puritan Reformed Baptist minister. And in his struggle to come to saving faith, 
he said, you know, I had convinced myself if I really had saving faith, then, you know, Jesus says you can move mountains. Well, I've never moved a mountain, he said, so I don't know if I have saving faith. So he goes out one day and he's walking along and he's like, I'm going to test whether I really have faith. And he comes to a puddle and it's a really heartbreaking account because Bunyan just looks at the puddle and, and he thinks, okay, if I have faith, I can make this puddle dry up. But if I try and it doesn't happen, then maybe that means I don't have saving faith. So he just stood there and stared at the puddle, and then he went home. It's a really, really heartbreaking account. One that's actually very important to us. Um, You cannot dry up a puddle if you have enough faith. If I'm the only minister you ever hear say that, please listen to me. You will not ever dry up a puddle if you have enough faith. But you said, Jesus said, if we had faith as a mustard seed, we would move mountains. No, he will move mountains. He is the object of our faith. It's not about how much faith we have. And he's speaking metaphorically. He's not saying literally, he is going to move mountains literally for us. Uh, So you are not going to, you are not going to make any inanimate object move or disappear without touching it. So let's settle that right now. But Jesus, with a word, can command the wind and the waves, and they obey him. I can't even command my children to obey me. And I'm not joking. Um, I can't command you to obey Jesus And you actually obey him. I can't command just about anything and it obeys me. Jesus is God. And he has power over nature. And with a word, he causes the wind and the waves to stop. And there's peace. And there's calm. I don't want you to be unamazed because you've heard this before. We should be amazed every time we hear this account. And we should see the great power of Jesus. You know, there's this great contrast here in this account. Here is Jesus in all of his humanity. You have to listen very carefully. So if you've checked out, please don't. Um, Here's Jesus in all the weakness of his humanity. He's asleep. He's tired. He's weak. He has to sleep. He is just like us when we are exhausted, except without sin, asleep on the boat in the middle of the storm. And the next moment, he is showing that he is also almighty God who is able with all the divine power to stop the wind and the waves with a word. Is that not astonishing? The great contrast, the absolute weakness of his humanity, the absolute power of his deity combined in one person, always at every moment. When he's asleep on the boat, He's upholding the world by the word of his power with his father and the spirit. You know, the disciples were troubled by this storm. It was overcoming them. And it was in that sense, as we've said, a picture of the trials and tribulations that overcome us. But, but nothing ever overcame Jesus. You know, I, I wonder at the fact that, marvel at the fact that when he hangs on the cross, remember there's an earthquake. When Jesus hangs on the cross, the sun is darkened. There's a great earthquake. You see, nature doesn't have power over him. He has power over nature. 
This is the Son of God. This is God incarnate. This is the long-awaited Redeemer. And he is doing what only he can do. You know, there are indications of his deity in this. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read some of these accounts in the Psalms especially, uh, for instance, the psalmist says of Yahweh, of the Lord in Psalm 65, 7, that he stills the roaring of the seas. He says, Yahweh, the Lord, stills the roaring of the seas. Here, Jesus is Yahweh. He is doing what the psalmist said a thousand years before only the covenant Lord, the infinite God, can do. And then again in in Psalm 89.9, the psalmist says that the Lord rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Isn't that amazing? These are all precursors to the scout. When the waves rise, you still them. And then the psalmist in Psalm 106 says, and this is fascinating, by the way, he says about the Lord, you rebuke the waters of the Red Sea. You know how, by the way, if you've ever, like if you read, if you get most of your Bible science from CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, please just stop. Please. Um, if you ever read secular scientists talking about naturalistic ways the Red Sea might have parted because, you know, there's these seasons and times when the waters move and what Israel probably experienced was this natural moving of the water like uh, this happens up in Alaska in Turnigan Arm when the waters go out and, and they, they somehow could, that's when they could walk across. No, God rebuked the waters of the sea and they split apart and they went through as on dry ground. Here's the Lord and he's rebuking the waters and he's rebuking the wind. Uh, perhaps the greatest psalm that captures the deity of the Lord Jesus here, that he is God, is Psalm 107, where it talks about the men on the sea and the ships are reeling and tossed to and fro and, and they're fearful hearted. I mean, it's almost, straight, it's almost the same account, Psalm 107. Some went down to the ship, sea and ships. They did business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord as wondrous works. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. That's Psalm 107. It's exactly what the Lord is doing on the boat, on the sea with his disciples here in Luke 8. Um, There is another picture of how Jesus calms the storms. Because if we step back and we say, okay, how do I take this and apply this to my life and my circumstances and situations? You could say, well, when the hardships come, when the trials come, the Lord brings us through. We've already talked about that. That's true. But there's a day coming when he won't bring you through the trials in this life, and you'll die. That day is coming. And the Bible uses that, the language of the Lord leading his people to the other side. Now, Jesus says to his disciples here, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side. And I think that we are meant to step back and say, there is a picture here of the totality of my Christian life, Christian experience. And there's a day coming when I'm going to need Jesus to lead me through the dark storm of death 
and safely to the other side so that I'll be with him forever. There's that day is coming. That day will come. It will come very quickly for all of us. And this account is teaching us that if Jesus is with us, if we are trusting him, he can and will bring us to the other side. Now, how does that happen? Well, there's an account in the Old Testament that maybe you've already thought about. It's the account of Jonah on the ship. And remember, Jonah is fleeing from God. He's, he's living in unbelief. He's living in rebellion. He is, um, he, there's a great storm that comes down on the boat. The sailors are freaked out. Uh, Jonah knows that it's because of him. And ultimately, they draw straws to see who it is, and the straw falls on Jonah, and he says, throw me in the ocean, throw me in the storm, and, and this will be over. And they do, and it is. And the point of that is not, like, if you're ever in the storm of life, you know, try to escape, and it'll be over. The point is that Jesus is the greater Jonah, and he throws himself into the storm of God's wrath, on the cross, he throws himself into the storm. He, he, he has no calm or peace. The one who slept on the boat on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think about that. The one who is perfectly calm in the middle of this storm is in anguish of soul as he hangs under the wrath of God in the place of his people on the cross. And that's how we know that the storm of God's wrath ceases for us as he brings us to the other side. That's where the calm is. That's where the peace is. That's where our comfort is. That's where our hope is. Now, I need that. I don't know about you because uh, there's a day coming that I'm going to die. And it may come sooner than later. And... um, and I want to make it to the other side. Um, I want to make it to glory, to a place of perfect peace and rest with Christ. That's what heaven is. And those who are trusting him will make it because of what he did at the cross. And those who are not trusting him will perish in their sin. And there will be no rest and no peace and you will not make it safely to the other side. You know, we're, we're told in the other Gospels that there were other boats on the sea with them. We don't know what happened to them. I think that's an interesting detail. Jesus is in the boat with these disciples. We're told that there are other boats on the sea. We don't know if they made it. But those who were Jesus made it. Now, I want to say this, though, this morning. Jesus rebukes the twelve for their unbelief. He says, where's your faith? And, you know, as I meditated on this, I thought, how often I need the Lord to say that to me. Nick, where's your faith? Are you trusting me? Are you trusting me in this moment? Are you trusting me in the hard times, in the times when it feels like the bottom has just been ripped away from under you? Are you trusting me? Or are you freaking out in sinful anxiety like these disciples? But as I thought about this, and I thought about him saying this to the disciples, it's interesting. He is with the 12 disciples, and there is one disciple that hears that who will go on to perish, and that's Judas. I think this is an important lesson for us. There is one disciple on that boat, and he saw all of Jesus' miracles, and he heard all of his teaching, and he saw him calm the wind and the waves with a word. 
And he went on to see every other miracle and to hear every other word Jesus spoke. And he was on the boat when Jesus addressed him and said, where is your faith? And he was in the upper room when Jesus stooped and washed his feet. And then he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And he perished in unbelief. And Jesus said it would be better for that man if he had never been born. Now, that's a word of warning. I want to leave that. As much as I want you to be comforted, if you're in Christ, if he's with you, if you're trusting him, you should have all the comfort in the world. If you know who he is, because the disciples still don't know who he is fully right here. They, they, after all this, they say, who is this? Who can do this? And yet, there's one who, who even though he sees it, even though he sees all of it, he perishes. Um, that's a word of warning. I want to leave that with you this morning. As much as I want you who are trusting in him to be comforted, I want you who don't know who he is, don't care who he is, are indifferent to who he is, will hear all of his words of warning, all of his rebukes, all of his promises, all of his miracles, all of his teaching, and yet who will go on in sin and unrepentant living to understand you will not make it safe to the other side. Um, and yet there's comfort, there's hope for those of you whose hearts long to know the Lord Jesus and the power of Jesus more. There is only hope. There is a promise of everlasting peace and joy. There is a promise of calm and rest, no matter what you're going through in life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that when our hearts are restless like and the disciples' hearts were restless. And when uh, you have brought us into the storms of life and we are sinfully fearful and we are sinfully anxious and we are self-trusting and we are not trusting in you, Lord Jesus, that you would be merciful to us, that you would make us to hear that word of rebuke, where's your faith? We pray that you would increase our faith. We pray, our God, that you would show us this morning, with the eyes of faith, the great power of the Lord Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man. Our God, we pray that you would make us to know that power in our experience, in our daily life. And we pray that we would know it when you come to bring us across uh, the, the turbulent waters of death. We pray, our God, that you would be merciful to us for your name's sake and for our joy and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.